And welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com. He is Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow. Good to be with you for the next 60 minutes. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. Hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. A number of rule changes were implemented yesterday at the Spring Owners League meeting, so we are going to get into that. Jim Deopolis, former NFL referee, will be joining us a little bit later on to break those down. Before we get to that, though, let's start with some Giants news. And yesterday, the Giants made an addition to the receiving core, Paul, as they added Russell Shepard. So he's the third former Carolina Panther that yeah. has ties to Dave Gettleman <laughs> because he brought in a corner and he also already brought in a running back who played for Carolina. Now he adds a wide receiver into the mix. And Shepard's really known as a special teamer. That yes. really has been his MO throughout the course of his career. Yeah, uh, he has been a return guy. Uh, he's also been on the uh, coverage units. Um, 6'1", 195, uh, 27 years old. Those are the official stats on him. Uh, you know, look, he's an LSU guy. Uh, we know there's a connection to LSU on this team for a sure. Big connection, yes. <laughs> Besides Mr. Beckham, uh, Thomas McGadahey, the uh, special teams coordinator, is also uh, a one-time LSU employee in addition to being a two-time Giants employee. Um, we're talking about a guy who, you know, good character guy again, but m- people probably know him more as a Buccaneer because he was only with the Panthers for one season last last year. Uh, Spent more time with Tampa. Did have one season in 2016, a couple of years ago, 23 catches. Uh, You know, that's somewhat substantial for a guy who's at the back end of the depth chart. Um, But, you know, how much his uh, role, you know, develops into, uh, I don't know right now. This is just another guy who's a character guy helping fill out the depth chart, and we'll see if, amongst other people, they can step up and not only help the actual depth chart at their respective positions, much like all those defensive backs the Giants signed, but can they, in fact, become really good special teams demons because the Giants also needed help there? Well, and you have to because if you're third, fourth, fifth on the depth chart, Paul, probably most of your reps are going to come on special teams as opposed to lining up as a wide receiver game to game. So that's why if you're going to bring in somebody towards the back end of the depth chart, he needs to have had some special teams experience. And I think Shepard falls right in line with that. Cody Latimer is another guy they brought in this offseason who did not have a big role in Denver. He was known for special teams. He's had a good spring, by the way. Yeah, he's been very productive. And and part of that has been because Odell Beckham has not been taking part in a lot of those drills. So Latimer... (laughs) has been lining up with the first team, and he's taken full advantage. Hunter Sharp has also yeah. been elevated because of the uh, inability of Beckham to be cleared by the medical staff. So, you know, the Giants are certainly giving opportunities to a bunch of these other folks because they're a team that's trying to turn it around, and they're looking for any additional production that they can get, no matter who's going to do it. They're not playing favorites here. It's like, okay, folks, opportunities in front of you. Coughlin used to talk all the time about opportunity. It's there. These guys just got to go seize it. Roger Lewis is another player still in the mix in terms of the receiving core. I I think you brought up an interesting comparison, Paul, when you brought up the cornerback spot because I think there's some parallels between the cornerbacks and the wide receivers right now. The similarity is there's volume at both positions, and it's a matter of who's going to rise to the top and who's going to win those positional battles as we make our way to training camp. Yeah, there's no doubt, and I also believe that the Giants will have their radar out as well to see if someone else should pop free that really – tickles their interest, if you will. And so these guys have to understand they're not just competing against themselves. They definitely are competing against other depth charts around the league. Well, and the key is here, 
whether or not these guys are going to push one another. I think that's something that coaching staffs are always looking for, and that's re- one of the reasons why they bring in more players at that position. It- it's mm-hmm. not just necessarily looking for them to improve and adapt to the system, Paul, but it's also, you know, how does a guy react, especially a young guy, when maybe you bring in a more established veteran who's been around the block a few times as opposed to just saying, hey, we're going to give the young kid the shot, and he doesn't have to worry about anything. He doesn't have to look behind him. Well, think of it this way, and I know Parcells used to think of it this way. Um, If a young guy could not rise to the occasion and win a competition against a fellow young guy or unproven guy in his own locker room, how is he supposed to rise to the occasion against an opponent on Sunday? That'd be an issue. That's why you're building him up before the season even starts to say, hey, if he embraces the competition with us, then there's no concern that we're worried about when we put him out on you the know, field against you, the opposition. Yeah, you've you got to win your own locker room first before you can go out and beat somebody else. So Russell Shepard is the newest member of the New York Giants, and as far as the Panthers' ties, it's no surprise that Dave Gettleman would be turning to players that he has familiarity with. I don't think that's necessarily a stunner. Jonathan Stewart is another player who he brought in, but the common theme here, Paul, is players who have experience, who are veterans, who know what it's like to be in a locker room, and they understand the importance of OTAs and the importance of the offseason program. Yeah, you know, once again, Gettleman has has very carefully selected all of the imports on this team. These are all guys who, for one reason or another, have had, or at least it seems like almost all of them, have had connections to either Gettleman or the coaching staff in the past and clearly have gotten a thumbs up, good references, good reviews as people, as locker room guys, you know, as teammates, in addition to whatever football uh, production that they've also been able to put forth on the field. I don't think there's any question about that. You can't name one guy to me right now that they have brought in that doesn't check all of those other boxes in addition to being an experienced NFL player. Well, and that was part, I think, of the mindset when they were looking to make tweaks to the roster this offseason. They haven't taken any chances. There have been no risks on any of these guys. None. You brought up the LSU connection, and I was doing some homework. 2011, if you go back to the LSU roster, you had Russell Shepard, you had Odell Beckham, you had Jarvis Landry, you had Ruben Randall. He was on that team, too. And then you also had Katron Boone, who was briefly, if you remember, with the Giants in 2016 yes. Yes. during training camp and then was waived before they finalized the roster. So it was really the who's who of the Giants receiving core <laughs> over the last few years when you look at the uh, makeup of the 2011 LSU roster. Yeah, that's that's what it sounds like to me. Uh, there's certainly a pipeline there. You want to talk, talk the, uh, call them receiver central, go right ahead. Uh, but I will tell you this, Lance. The bottom line for the Giants is that they've got time to figure these things out, and that's exactly why you do these things. Because by the time September rolls around, you don't want to be fussing around trying to figure out who those guys are going to be. This is the time to try to separate the men from the boys, if you will. Absolutely, and that's why I think the more competition you bring in, the better overall for the productivity of your team. It's not necessarily a surprise that they brought in a veteran now because they're in the midst of OTAs and they figure if they can get that person to understand and know the system now, it's only going to help them more so when they get closer to training camp. So, you know, everybody's wondering if they would bring in veterans at other positions. And I always say, look for 
right before training camp. Yeah. Given the fact that most veterans, if you look over the course of NFL history, you know, try to avoid the OTA period. Well, that too. And that's putting it kindly. And training camp as exactly. well. Exactly. So that's why the closer they could come in to mm. training camp, the better off they potentially feel. But here the Giants saw a guy that was just recently waived. You know, recently the Panthers parted ways with him. Gettleman knows him from his days at Carolina, and they figured that he would add value on the back end of the depth chart. Yeah, I mean, to me, the, the one thing that, you know, they got to try to deal with on special teams is they also need to, to make those guys aware that many times the, the, the fellows who excel on special teams have to be able to swallow their egos. They have to know that, you know what, I am just a role player. I am the fifth cornerback. I am the fifth receiver. There have been guys here in the past, and I'm not going to name names. There have been guys here in the past who were backup receivers or corners on the depth chart. And then because of that, maybe didn't necessarily show as much emotion or gumption on special teams. Because maybe they felt it was a chore. It was a, a duty that they really didn't want to do. And, you know, you can't have that. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Giants.com, Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. So glad you could join us. We apologize for some of the technical difficulties that we've been having, but we should be back up and running. And we were talking about Russell Shepard, the newest addition to the New York Giants receiving corn. Another big topic of discussion over the last few days has been the fact that the league has made some rule changes. And to provide more insight on that front and how these new rule changes will be impacting the game moving forward in 2018, we are now just joined by a very special guest, and that is former NFL referee for 11 years as an on-field official, also spent 12 years as an NFL supervisor of officials, and that is Jim Deopolis. Jim, you got Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Giants.com. Appreciate the time. How's everything? Doing great, guys. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on today. No, thank you, Jim. We appreciate it. This is a very complex time right now for many fans <laughs> who are not only trying to sort out specifically what some of these rule changes are, especially involving the kickoffs and involving the the uh, use of the helmet, but they're also trying to figure out, okay, uh, if we understand what the rules are, how is it going to impact what we're supposed to see every weekend during the fall? So I guess what we probably should do is open this up to you first, and if you could give us your take on what the biggest changes uh, in terms of the elements of these new rules will bring and then how you think uh, they will be um, uh, impacted or how they will wind up manifesting themselves on the field. Well, you know, to start off, I think the, the league is doing exactly what they're requiring themselves to do, is they're trying to be more proactive in protecting players. Uh, the, the first big rule change that, that people will see this year has to do with, you know, helmet-to-helmet contact. We look at that so often, guys. Uh, you know, hits on defenseless receivers, hits on defenseless players. But they've, now what they've done is they've expanded this rule. Basically, it's a, it's a foul. If a player lowers his head, uh, they say to initiate or uh, make contact with, with a helmet against an opponent. Guys, this is going to be very difficult for individuals to officiate because they're saying any contact by lowering the helmet, and you know basically this is the, the way the game is played, but they're saying any contact with the helmet is, is, a, is a foul and can be uh, an ejecta, ejectable uh, provision. So 
it's going to be very difficult for the officials to handle this. I think there's going to be a lot of work here in the next few months before the officials meet uh, in July as a group to discuss implementing these rules. But that, that to me, is going to be a major change because basically what they've also done is that they excluded incidental contact. So, and they've also said that, you know, action inside the tackle box doesn't matter. So, I'm telling you guys, this is gonna this is gonna really change the way we watch football. Uh, and I understand, you know, they're they're concerned about head injuries, but boy, you know, there's so much incidental contact that goes on helmet to helmet out there. And now they're saying that that's going to be a foul. Well, Jim, you know, they always say in a courtroom one of the toughest things to prove is intent. You know, whether it's manslaughter or murder. Okay, well, intent makes a big difference to a lawyer and a judge and a jury there. And it's so hard to get inside somebody's head to say, okay, there was an intention to do this. The speed of the game, the amount of guys on the field at one time. You're an official. You're on the field. You're making split-second decisions. And you're now also going to have to get inside a player's head basically to determine if he intended to use his helmet in an illegal fashion. What is the, what is a realistic way? Maybe do they add another official? Do they do they have an eye in the sky? What what could they do, in your opinion, to try to legislate this with some semblance of order? Well, you know, you make a great point. But one of the things that we taught officials in officiating these types of actions is you can't look at intent. It is basically the responsibility of the player who is initiating that contact. And if he's trying to initiate that contact into the chest, and it just so happens that the uh, opponent's head goes down and he hits the opponent, it's his responsibility. You know, you, you've got to take uh, intent out of there because you really, as you said, you know, there's no way to determine intent. So we've, we've taken that out of there. So basically that's the issue that they're going to have. Now, they are going to have that eye in the sky where they're going to let these individuals, uh, these calls, go to New York and the decisions are going to be made up in New York for ejections, etc. So they are going to get a little bit of assistance on that. But I'm telling you guys, this is this is changing the landscape of professional football, and it's going to be a different game than we've watched over the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Who will that favor, Jim, the offensive or the defensive players? It's going to favor the offensive players. But again, you know, it, it, the, the rule kind of protected that offensive player because he was defenseless. But now they're saying if that offensive player lowers his helmet and initiates the contact, he's going to be ejected. Mm-hmm. If you've got two linemen in the interior line that lower their heads and go helmet to helmet, they have the possibility of being ejected. So I think the league is going to have to take a hard look at it over the next few months and try to come up with some kind of a... Uh, a philosophy or how they're going to handle this officiating-wise so when the officials meet in July at their, at their annual conference to get ready for the season, they'll have a better understanding on how they want this officiated. But again, the league is, is basically trying to protect themselves, and they're trying to protect these players uh, from these head injuries. Jim, you mentioned the eye in the sky that New York is going to be monitoring whether or not the ejection will be upheld from an officiating standpoint. I mean, you've been on the field. Is that a nice insurance blanket, an insurance policy to have, given the fact that it's very difficult to interpret these rules right now, to have the league 
have that extra eye to determine whether or not to uphold an ejection? How does that aid the officials who are actually on the field? I, I've had the opportunity to both officiate and, and work games uh, with instant replay and without instant replay. And, and guys, I can tell you, without, without a doubt, it's, an, it's a tremendous officiating tool. Uh, people feel that it makes officials hesitant, but officials want to get the call correct. And basically, when you use instant replay, you have the tools to look at the play and get this 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 call correct. Uh, I've really liked what college has done over the last few years with their targeting rule. Basically, they go they go upstairs, and the and the replay officials can make the call if it's not made on the field. Because, as you said earlier, this game is so fast and happens so quickly, and you know. Did the guy dip his shoulder? Did he get a good angle? Let's look at it on replay because we have the technology. Let's use the technology that's available because if we're going to start ejecting players, and, and that's, a, that's a competitive issue now once the league starts ejecting players during the game. And, you know, over the years, we have all always been taught and we've taught the officials, stay away from the ejections. Don't eject players because it's such a, a big issue with the ejections. Uh, let the league handle it on Mondays and Tuesdays, and then if they want to eject them next week, because we didn't want to make mistakes. But now, when you're going to start ejecting players from helmet-to-helmet hits, you know, during a game, you're going to have some issues. I hope they're going to plan on uh, increasing the roster sizes. One thing, Jim, that one of the network guys had said this morning on television and I don't know if he's just blowing smoke because he wanted to create his own headline or because he really believes this is true. So I'm going to ask you about the the realistic chances of what he's talking about. He said, because of this helmet-to-helmet thing, you're not going to have any more linemen in three-point stances on the offensive line because anytime they're in a three-point stance on the line, they're going to wind up clicking helmets with the guy on the other side of the line of scrimmage. And then the referees are going to have to throw out the entire offensive line. So that they're all going to have to be in a stand-up two-point stance from now on, and we will see a totally different look to offensive lines from this point forward. I thought he might have been a little dramatic, but Jim, is there any any teeth to this? Maybe a little dramatic, but not that far off base, because it is a concern. And, and you know, there's so many issues that coaches are going to have to change their techniques, their philosophies, how they coach offensive linemen, how they coach defensive linemen. And, and you know, you, you just run into these situations where these guys bang heads. And, you know, as I said earlier, you, you can't rule intent on these things. If there's helmet-to-helmet contact, basically they, the rule is stating that's a foul and we're taking intent out of it. So now what are we going to do? Are we going to start ejecting these players and, and, and that, you know, I think you're going to go down a slippery slope here. But if you, if you start doing it, I mean, you better be consistent on how they handle this. Just to clarify for the listeners and viewers who are just joining us, the ejection standards for this new helmet rule are player lowers his helmet to establish a linear body posture prior to initiating and making contact with the helmet. Player delivering the blow had an unobstructed path to his opponent. Contact was clearly avoidable. 
player delivering the blow had other options. Jim, that last line, that contact was clearly avoidable, player delivering the blow had other options. What exactly do they mean by that? Meaning that there should have been another manner in which they went for the tackle and there was the ability to do that once the player, such as the running back or the receiver, was out in the open field? That, that's exactly what they're saying, is that they, the player that's initiating that contact, he's going to have other options. And, and again, you know, we're going to keep uh, you know, talking about this, guys, but if a guy starts to lower his helmet to go, you know, into the, into the chest or the so-called strike zone that we call, and all of a sudden the player drops his helmet, you know, it's still the responsibility of that initial player that who, you know, who, who makes the initial movement. And uh, I'll tell you, it's going to be very difficult to officiate it, but again, the onus is on that player to find a better way to hit where he's not leaning with the helmet and he's not going into the, the helmet or the crown uh, area of his, of his opponent. Let me ask you about the new kickoff rule, uh, Jim, because, you know, I can see the traffic jam from upstairs in the press box on what goes on during kickoffs. It's total chaos on the field. And I'll be honest, I don't know how any amount of officials could see everything that's happening on every kickoff. And now they're adding more rules to the kickoff, including, like, how many yards you can be when you have a tandem block or how many yards you can be before you start running and this and that. To me... I, I can't even imagine an official down on the field being able to compute all of these things once again in a matter of milliseconds. How difficult is that going to be to deal with? You make a great point, and I have don't have any idea how they're going to officiate this. It, it, it just absolutely boggles my mind when I read the, the major revisions for the kickoff rules with the, the kicking team alignment, eliminating the five-yard the running start, the spread, uh, you know, the wedge blocking. You know, I'm just of the opinion that we're going to see the elimination of kicks in the in pro football over the next few years. You're not going to see kickoffs or punts because that's where so many injuries occur. And, and there there is talk that they're going to eliminate it. But, you know, getting back to your point, I just don't know how they're going to officiate this thing. You know, it, it's it, it's very difficult Um you know, you've got you've got your officials out there, and you all have your areas. But you know, when you start reduce the blocking area fifteen yards from the kickoff spot, uh, you know, I, I like the fact that they've said the kickoff, the kick that goes into the end zone now that is uh, you know untouched or unplayed, you know, is a touchback. So you're not going to see a lot of crazy stuff going on. But I I, I have a really hard time answering that question because I don't know how they're going to officiate it because I've never been involved in anything like this other than say, hey, guys, let's just eliminate a kickoff, put the ball on the 25-yard line, and go from there. We're talking with Jim Deopolis, 11 years as an NFL on-field official, 12 years as an NFL supervisor of officials. You know, Jim, you spoke about all these technicalities and how difficult it is going to be for the officials to really hone in on it once the 2018 season starts. So with that being said, what is important? for all current officials as well as the league from now till the start of the season? How do they reinforce this? How do they get those mental reps so that it becomes second nature when they're trying to enforce these rules on the field in 2018? Well, it's like what they do year-round. And, 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 and I can tell you, these the NFL officials really study and watch a lot of film. And the competition committee has gone to great lengths 
to address these two issues, these issues that we've discussed with many, many plays. And they are sending these plays to the officials to study them. Here's the play. Here's how it's, watch what happens here. And now here's how we want this officiated. But again, guys, once the game starts, you know, it's going to, you know, the, uh, the reactions are going to have to take over because they're going to just have to teach these guys how to officiate kickoffs and contact, helmet contact again, because this is something that's going to be, that's new to all of these guys. It's just a change in what they have looked at over the uh, many years that they've been officiating. You know, Jim, I think it's fair to say because I know that teams and there are analytics people that keep stats on officials and crews in terms of what they think their tendencies are uh, and, oh, this crew likes to call holding or this crew likes to call pass interference more. And I appreciate if you have a sensitivity to that because, I mean, I think everybody understands there's a natural human inconsistency sometimes in how a particular play or game is going to be called. It seems to me that... There's going to be a lot of inconsistencies, if not early in the season, maybe all throughout the season, as some of these new rules become so complex and so spiderweb-like that you're going to have a lot of inconsistencies. And you're going to have people looking at replay saying, oh, look, did you see when, when the other team ran that 25-yard end around to the left? There was an offensive lineman on the right. Look at the replay. He was clicking helmets with somebody. They should have called that. I mean, that's not good for the game, is it? I don't think it is. And, and I think you make a great point. And I think what, what would have really helped, and I've, I have uh, talked about this for years and years, is unfortunately the NFL does not have a developmental program, you know, where they had NFL Europe. Uh, and NFL Europe, uh, they were able to practice these things. They were able to implement uh, potential rule changes. They were able to implement situations that, that occurred, and we were able to teach young officials how they need to officiate at this level. Uh, unfortunately, this is going to change. You know, they have no developmental program now where they can start, you know, to do this in the off season. So basically, they're going to learn on Sunday nights and Monday nights and Thursday nights uh, during the regular season, and that's not a good time to have to learn, to learn all this stuff. No. Jim, because there's not enough time in the there's not enough time in the preseason to to pick all this all these plays and these new uh, these new rules up. Well, and related to that, Jim, I think from a coaching standpoint, the coaches and I know you said you had some interaction in terms of well, if I'm a special teams coach, how am I coaching my players? If I'm an offensive or defensive coach, <laughs> how am I now coaching my yeah. players with the helmet? Given <laughs> the fact that Jim. When you look at the new CBA, I mean, they have limited time as it is in terms of practice and limited contact in the offseason. So yeah. I think it goes both ways with teams, players, as well as officials. It, it, it sure does. And like I said, you know, we, we're trying to teach everybody more because we're in the same situation with officials. You know, from the end of the season till the 15th of May, there's no contact allowed by the league to yeah. the officials. So, you know, it's kind of the same thing with the players, although the players start having their OTAs, et cetera, and they start, they, they, they try to jam it in, and, you know, it's like cramming for an exam, you know. You try to learn it all in a short period of time, and, and again, it's, it's going to be tough, and there's going to be a learning process, and there's going to be mistakes that are going to be made out there by, by the players, by the coaches, and by the officials, and by the league office. 
the league is going to they're going to make mistakes up in New York. Uh, some of their interpretations of fouls and all that. So it's just going to be a learning process over the next you know over this next season, and hopefully they can uh, they can work it uh, sooner rather than later. Jim, if you don't mind, I'm going to go off topic for one second while we have you here, and we're so grateful you were able to give us some time this morning on our program. Let me ask you about the catch rule, if I can, because they tried to clean that up a short time ago. And while we have you on the air, could you could you please explain to me what a catch is? <laughs> you know, I've always been of the opinion that, you know, catch the football. You know, the biggest mistake the NFL has made on this thing is, is including instant replay in it. You know, you've got individuals that are officiating the football game that have been doing this for a long time. You know, we, we watch the game, and so often we can see what our eyes show us. What do the eyes tell you? Why do we have to go to a, uh, a camera and, and run it frame by frame to see if the laces are moving on a ball to do this? You know, we've, we've, made, we've tried to micromanage this. Grab, hold the ball. That's all I used to tell guys when they were officiating it. You know, watch the player hold on to the ball. Just tell him to hold on to the ball when he catches it. You know, don't don't make all these moves. And, you know, now they're saying, you know, you have to have control. You have to have feet down. You have to make a, a football move. Blah, blah, blah. You, you do all this. They're just making it too difficult. What is the catch? Hold on to the ball. Kind of like we did in the backyards. When you caught the ball, you caught the ball. If you dropped the ball, you dropped the ball. We never had replay, and we got along pretty well with it. So I, I wish I could give you a really simple answer. All I ever say is hold on to the football. It makes it a whole lot easier for them to officiate it. Talking with former NFL referee Jim Diopolis. Jim, last one for me, just going back to this kickoff rule. I know we asked you earlier, you know, who does the new helmet rule favor? How likely is it for us to see more kickoff returns given these new rules because of perhaps no running starts, the removal of the wedge block? Is it possible that special teams coaches are going to say, hey, let me give the green light to my players to take it out of the end zone? Or do you not see it changing much of anything? I, gosh, that's a great question, and it's going to be hard to tell because I, I don't know how they're going to be coaching this thing. Uh, you know, it just seems to me it would make more sense if that ball goes into the end zone, take it off to the 25-yard line and start from there. Why chance running out of there, having an illegal block, getting it, get, you know, the, there's too many opportunities to lose it. Um I, I don't think you're going to see a lot of change in the number of returns. You're going to see a whole, a, a, a large number, a large fewer number of injuries on kickoffs. That's, and that's what they're looking for in the NFL. Based on the data that they obviously collected over the last few years, certainly that was the ammunition to make a change yeah. like this. Well, we've been joined by former NFL referee, on-field official for 11 years, 12 years as an NFL supervisor of officials. He's Jim Diopolis. Jim, greatly appreciate the time and the insight. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jim. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. Talk to you soon. Take care. Be good. You got it. So there you go, Jim Diopolis weighing in on these new rule changes with respect to the helmet rule as well as the kickoff rule. And, you know, 
there's a lot of technicalities, as he mentioned, which is going to put officials who already, let's face it, under the microscope as it is. This is now no just going to put them, Paul, further under the microscope. But I, I thought what was interesting that he had to say, at least on the helmet rule, while there are grounds for ejections, the fact that they've got the league in New York taking care of it and having an extra set of eyes, because I listened to Al Riveron's press conference when he was speaking to the media, Paul, and he said that, New York, they'll review every single one of those potential ejections. They'll have the right to uphold it or overturn it. If they overturn it, it's still a 15-yard penalty, but they could still keep the player in the game. So New York is going to have a great deal of influence on this new helmet rule. I sensed a great deal of stress in his voice and certainly concern in his voice as he tried to explain how all of these things will be enacted uh, certainly how they're going to be called cleanly and consistently. I don't think there's any question about that. He's got a lot of worry about that. And so maybe I wonder if the league wouldn't have been better off to postpone these rules for a year to maybe give people more time to coach it, more time to learn it. I mean, as you said, they've only got a few months now till the season starts. And you heard Jim say preseason games is not going to be enough for everybody to get on board with this. Well, that's why I think part of the rationale, Paul, is the kickoff rule. It's going to be implemented this year, and then based on the data that they collect, they'll determine is this permanent or do they want to go back to some of the initial things? Because the rate of injury, as Jim mentioned right before we let him go, yes. that's the data that the league is interested in. They're going to see how much more likely it is for players to get hurt on these types of plays to determine, okay, what is in place is working or are they going to have to make further tweaks or, to his point, the extreme of completely removing the kickoff? Can I talk as a fan for just sure. a second? Let's forget the headsets. Forget that we're actually doing a show. Let me just be a fan for a second. While the kickoff is an incredibly exciting play, it can be a dramatic game changer, especially if the guy goes 101 yards for a touchdown. I totally understand that. But I would say this, if it means player safety as a fan – I'd be willing to forgo kickoffs and just have them start the ball at the 25-yard line. It's not going to take that much of the enjoyment of the game away from me as a fan. That would be like taking one little chocolate chip out of the cookie, and there's still another 25 chocolate chips in the cookie. It's not going to make me starve or be hungry or feel miserable about the game of football if they were to eliminate the kickoffs. So if that's the concern then I'm on board with those folks who say just forget about kicking the ball off, spot the ball to 25, and let's just move on. Well, I understand where you're coming from, but you know the other part of me feels field position is so important in the NFL, especially in late-game situations, Paul, where you know, you're against the clock and – 25 may not do it. You know, you have the opportunity to get to the 35 or the 40, and then now you just get one major throw and you're in field goal range. So, you know, but from a strategic spot, standpoint, I'd be a little bit concerned about that. In that spot, what's, what's happening? The other coach is saying, you know what? Kick the ball through the end zone and force them to take the touchback anyway. Of course, anyway. And, and that's a big so, part of it. But I, I guess so, the return team is still saying in the chance that the execution's not there but and the, they can't kick it out of the end zone, I, th- I still want my team to have the opportunity to forward the ball. I think Fiegels would tell you that kickers are so advanced now and they're so strong and they're such tremendous athletes that if you tell a kicker you need to kick this kickoff through the end zone to guarantee there's no return. They're probably going to be able to do that 95% of the time. The percentages are in their favor. I'm with you. Here's the other side of it. Even fans included need to take this into consideration. If you're a player, okay, and the union has a big part of the influence on this, Paul, 
Now you're telling return men that they are pretty much useless on a roster. You're, you're t- guys who make their bread and butter off of returning the football on kickoffs. And there's a lot of players. I mean, I know Devin Hester was a receiver, but he Learn was Learn how to return guy... punts, okay? Okay. That's no. your alternative. And, and they're going to have to make adjustments, but it's just the versatility of a player was the difference between being the 53rd guy versus the 54th guy or the practice squad player. So if you remove that, not only are you changing the game, as Jim mentioned, who we just had on, you're also changing the mindset of how to put a roster together, how to construct that. Sure and I don't are. know if the players, especially special teams players, are going to love that idea. And I'm sure they're going to fight back. And, you know, there's different layers and red tape and the CBA. All of those things have to be taken into consideration. And that, to me, I think is just as influential as the safety angle. So wow. you're trying to balance both of those factors. You know, if you're to believe what everybody says and what everybody wants to believe in their good heart of hearts, the safety angle outweighs everything and else. And I'm, I'm with you there. It should outweigh it. But I don't think we're all naive. I think we also understand that rosters and the well-being of players, too, from a financial standpoint and a roster standpoint, they feel that that's an important factor, too. And if I'm a player, Paul, you know, I was just drafted in the league or maybe I've got two or three years in the league and the main role that my team saw me doing was to return kickoffs, yeah, I'd be concerned now about what type of a role I have in the NFL moving forward. I I think that's certainly got to be on the minds of players. Let's and they're going to be voicing that. Let's yeah. find out what the fans think. Absolutely. All right, we'll give you an opportunity to weigh in at 201-939-4513, hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. Christian is in New York. Christian, what's happening? Hey, guys. Hi. Uh, the two of you were having a really cool conversation about the salary cap last week, and my idea was that it should be a lot more heavily incentive-based and give like every guy on the 53 roster like a million to start out. And then make things like a touchdown like very valuable. Like, well, but those things are already built into contracts. There's incentives. You make the Pro Bowl, you get more money. You can reach a certain plateau in terms of statistics, you get more money. I mean, those things are already utilized in contracts. Well, I would like to see it be uh, more of the emphasis of the deal. Um, basically, like your bench players would naturally make a lot less money because they're not hitting all those benchmarks on the field. And let's just say you know, just throwing a number around, the touchdown would be like $500,000. You know, like, guys are going to make probably what they make now and then more, you know, just depending on what kind of season they're having. And You know, I, basically you'd be at like $53 million to start out if you give everyone a million apiece. You know, I, then, I, I'm not trying to be wise to you, but here's the problem. Then how are you going to pay offensive linemen? who don't put up any stats. How are you going to yeah. pay a fullback who does nothing but block for guys all day but is a very productive and high-quality player? Yeah, you're basically I mean, telling them they got a flat rate you, and you that's know, it. You, you, basically, what you're telling me is you want to pay guys based on incentives and you're going to use fantasy football stats, to be quite frank with you, as the bar for how much money they're going to get paid. I, I, I mean, I don't see any way in the world that that holds water. I agree 100%, Christian, with Paul, because here's another example. If What if I'm a wide receiver, I'm a great blocker, and I open things up for the running game? How do you computate that statistic? How do I gain an incentive? Maybe I'm not getting to 65, 70 catches, but you know what? I do a hell of a job for our run game. 
how am I seeing any of that financially? It, it's very difficult to go by statistics alone to throw in incentives and contracts. There's so many other things that players get paid for that don't show up in the box score. If you remove that from the negotiation, you're really going to change the entire market of the NFL. I don't see the players' union agreeing to that. Well, what I was going to say is for a position like offensive line, that's kind of the only group in the fullback, too, really, that can't really go racking up stats to make their money. But my idea was that they should initially make a little more, but then having stats allowed deduct from it. Well, I mean, this could go across the board, though, to a lot of positions. How do you quantify what a defensive tackle's worth is? When on some teams, he's supposed to clog up people so the linebackers make the tackles. He does the heavy lifting you know, so other guys get on, the stats. On other teams, defensive yeah. tackles are penetrators. Aaron Donald tries to get sacks. Yep. So how, how, do you, how do you tell Snacks Harrison that you're much less valuable to the Giants than Aaron Donald is to the Rams when he is a bona fide phenomenal run stopper and Donald is more of a pass rusher? You can't, you can't equate those two. And here's the other thing. The other thing, Christian, is when you talk about free agency and guys go on the open market, if you're telling them right. they start at a million, well, what if what if I'm another GM and I value the guy and, and you're telling me I can only give him a million? Yeah. How am I supposed to grab a player I, look, from another team? It just, I, I appreciate you trying to be creative, it, it creative yeah. but theoretically, there are so many holes. It's like a, a big chunk of Swiss cheese you got right there. It's not going to work. Yeah, and, and appreciate the phone call, Christian. Thanks so much for weighing in. And we did have a detailed conversation about the salary cap. It's always interesting to think about ways that they could change it and maybe have a cap on specific players. But, you know, the open free market is a big part of the appeal for the players' perspective. I don't oh, think Paul sure is. are about to give up the uh, open free market. Let's uh, head back to the phone lines. We check in. Let's go to Jason in Denmark. Jason, what's happening? Hey, what's going on, Lance? Doing Hi, much, Jason. What's happening with you? Hey, uh, you stole my thunder, Lance, because that's exactly what I was going to say about the kickoff, about... Um, you know, players that play special teams and so on. And, Paul, if I remember right, you always say, if you want to get on this roster, play special teams. Spacers, learn how to return punts. Know how to learn how to do kickoffs. So if they take that away, I think those guys are going to be saying, you know, hey, that's my livelihood right, right here until, you know, I can move up to three, to two, to one as a receiver or something like that. So I think uh, I understand safety, don't get me wrong. I'm all about safety. You know, I'm, uh, I, I'm retired from the military, and all we preach was, you know, Thank you uh, for your service, by the way. We appreciate that. Um, so I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But, but So I'll go to the first thing we talk, you were talking about uh, as far as the hits go. Um, I'm in Denmark, so you know I'm watching a lot of uh, European football. And I remember when they started implementing rules about, you know, slide tackling. Did he go for the ball? Did he go for the ankle? Did he go for the knees? And so on. You had a, a, a great amount of players. I won't say dirty players. I'll just say people, opportunist players that would take a dive here and there. How likely would you think um, with these rule changes that you see when someone is going in for a hit that they would position themselves in a way that makes it look like the person lowered the head and then that player is ejected if it's a good player? Well, I mean, we are human beings, so, you know, that happens. Yeah. Well, it's a judgment play. So, you know, the tendency for something like that to happen is certainly always in play. These are judgment plays that now they're going to apply replay to. See, normally, if you keep in mind, the, the National Football League has shied away 
Paul, from these judgment type yes. of plays and involving replay. But, right. the, but the reason why I like the fact that replay is being involved, because sometimes to the naked eye, and, and this is sort of what you're alluding to, Jason, where it appears yeah. to be dirty, and then when you slow it down and you look at it via replay, it's not as bad as you thought it initially looked. So that's why I'm all for having replay involved here, because I don't think guys should be thrown out of games if it was such a bang-bang play, and to the naked eye it looked worse than it was. You know, to some degree, what you're talking about is you know what we not only see in soccer, but we see in the NBA when guys get Academy Awards for acting and drawing charges <laughs> underneath the basket. We see that sometimes yeah, yeah. with receivers yeah. who are trying to draw a pass interference flag on the defender who is knocking the ball away from them. You know, we see that, and it's called gamesmanship in a lot of circles. But I understand what you're saying because, heck, they finally had to put a rule into the NFL for punters who were taking dives to try to draw roughing the punter penalties. Yeah. And then the league finally said, oh, this is getting ridiculous now. You know, we, we got to stop that. And so now they, they have. But – you're right. There's going to be a human tendency to try to push the envelope as far as you can, try to blur that line, try to deceive, try to fake people out, try to cheat the rule. That happens so often with, with rules when they're implemented. So I don't disagree with your, your fear or phobia that that will happen. I'm sure at some point that it will. Right. And one last thing going around the league right now is the um, national anthem. Um, seeing that you know, the Giants, you know, our favorite team, is always looked at, you know, family, business, great team to come to, so on and so on and so on. Um, do you think we would get ahead of the rest of the league and make a decision on what to do? Now, I'm not going to go into whether they should do it or not and, and, and all this stuff that's going on, but just because other teams, players, look to us sometimes to see what we do to base what they do because we're such a great team and you know, and so on. Um, do you think we'll get ahead of it and uh, make a decision on what they should do? Well, we got to see what happens in terms of the vote, Jason, and appreciate the phone call. Until they vote on a specific direction that they want to go, it's hard to comment. I will say this. I think the ultimate goal is consistency in that manner. So, you know, Jason, when you say, is one team going to be the poster child for everybody else? I don't think that's what the league is envisioning. I think they want consistency across the board, and it's a matter of finding a rule that can maintain that so there really isn't much of a gray area. Mm -hmm. Let's head back to the lines. Coach Marvin is in Delaware. Coach Marvin, what's happening? How you doing, Lance? Paul, how you doing? Hey, Marvin. Doing well. What do you got for us? Yeah. Um, I was just uh, listening to the uh, rule changes <clears throat> as far as uh, tackling, and uh, that's going to be that's going to that's going to take some time to learn and teach. And uh, because uh, in tackling, a lot of times what we were teaching and what I taught was uh, leverage. The low man pretty much win when it comes to blocking or absolutely and. You're taking that away. The people like Fournette, it's going to be very difficult for people to, to go head up with these guys. Um, the Brandon Jacobs of the world, the guy wearing 265 and running the ball is a scary sight to see. Yeah, especially um, when he lowers his head out in open space. And he, 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 he lowers so his head. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of times what we, I taught my backs to keep my backs healthy. A lot of times the game is based on angles sometimes. Of you, I always wanted my guys, I always told them, you don't want to get hit, you want to get tackled. And what we, I would try to teach them to change the angle of the hit 
if you can see the hitter coming, you just want to turn in a way that you don't get the, a flush hit squared up on you. And and most of the most of the time, and most of the time that that works for yeah. my guys. Where, Marvin, let me ask you a question as a coach. Let me ask you a question. And you know, I didn't ask this a Jim, but it's certainly an extension. I didn't want to keep him on for the whole show. Uh, but how would you coach up your guys on the field? In a short yardage situation, let's call it third and inches, fourth and inches, or better yet, a goal line situation where we know you're just trying to nose that football a couple of inches to get the first down or to get the touchdown. I mean, think about this now. It's it's fourth and goal from the one-inch line. You, you guys are packing it in. Guys are knocking shoulder pads. They're knocking face masks. They're knocking helmets. And all of a sudden now, what are you going to do? Because the league is going to say, well, if any helmets click, we're going to throw these guys out. So now, guess what? It's fourth and goal from the one-foot line, and all the offensive linemen are going to stand up in a two-point stance because they're afraid to hit a helmet? I mean, can you imagine? How how would you coach that? Paul, you're definitely right, and you should be in the meeting with that because I thought of the same thing. Because what happens on my defense, let's go with the defensive side of the ball. On the defensive side of the ball, if they're on the goal line, a lot of time I teach my guys up up front, they're getting in a four-point stand. Right. And everything is going forward. If I'm on the offensive side, I, we close those gaps because we don't want anybody shooting those gaps. The line up in that A gap and we, we spaced out. Everybody's foot to foot. It's a tight, um, formation and everything is going forward. There's no going backwards and the strongest, the strongest line is going to win. What we always say, the front line, the teams are built from the front line. So those are the strength, and so you're trying to utilize that strength and dominate them up front, and that's going straight forward. We're not looking at where somebody's head is or anything like that. Short yardage is the same way. Only thing in the open field, the only problem they're going to have in the open field that's not short yardage is how you line up. If we're going to now be playing in a 3-4, and so the guys that are playing the 5 technique and the nose guard, they're head up on these guys, so their heads are right on them. Unless you're playing in a 4-3, you got a 3 technique, the 1 technique, and then you have a, a 7 technique. They're on the shoulders of those guys. Maybe it's not as uh, easy to go head up on somebody in that manner. But there's a lot of things that's going to go on in the game. Trapping. When we move those linemen, let a guy come through, and that guy's going to trap him. Sometimes that lineman, he, he's got to keep, he got to stay low. He's not running up high. He's staying low. Mm-hmm. So when, you st- when you're staying low, you le- your head is... Your shoulder's going where your head's going. Sure. Well, so, that's why I'm, so I'm interested to see what the league does to clarify activity in the box, which is what we're talking about right now. Because right. the league issued a video with these new changes. All of the plays were outside of the box. They had nothing right. to do with offensive linemen and defensive linemen coming and colliding with one another. Yet Riveron has come out and well, said I know he alluded this to will that. apply to linemen. But what he also, which is interesting, he addressed the media, which I was referencing to earlier in the program, and he said that when a running back gets a handoff, and you know how running backs have the tendency they lower their shoulders, they lower their mm-hmm. head? Yeah. He said that's an exception. That's You're not going to be penalized for that. And he also said when a quarterback runs out of the pocket, and you know how they normally go up the sideline and and at the last second they try to absorb the contact, they may put their helmet down or they may put their head right. and shoulder down, said that's also an exception, and that won't count against these rules. So that's why I said I, I want to see a little bit more clarification 
between what? in the box versus outside of the box type of activity? Because I've heard mixed so, signals. With you know, if to you're that. not going to call yeah. a running back when he grabs the ball and lowers his Correct. body, and he's going up. The all right, gun. here's the How problem. Though. I mean, here's it's the problem. A penalty all the time. Marvin's going to tell you yeah. he's telling his uh, defensive player to get lower than that running back, and I get That's that. Right. And, and so now that defensive player is going to get the penalty. I, I find it very difficult to believe that they're going to penalize those type of plays. We'll I, see. I, I find but, um, it very difficult to believe that. The, the other scenario, what you're saying, Lance, and I understand what you're saying, but what happens when you're on the outside? That hit, he hits that outside, and the corners on the outside, but that safety is bearing down on him. Well, the, and what I always yeah, tell my guys, you got to lower yourself and get skinny, so your target is not mm-hmm. as big. So how do he do that? He gets low. And I'm and I'm with you, and I completely understand. But that to me would classify as now the penalty range, because if you're saying if the running back by that time, let's say he gets off a sweep, coach, and he moves towards the right, and then the safety's coming down, to me that's open season for the penalty to be called if that safety lowers his helmet and does not position himself where he could have avoided that type of contact. That I don't what, know. If, what, I don't think that's as much of a gray area. But what if it's the running area. back that lowers his head? Same, same thing goes. If, if the running back is off the sweep outside of the box and he's running up the sideline, I think he's also putting himself at risk for a penalty as well. Marvin, I want right. to get to other yeah. calls here, but I want to get your real quick answer. Do you want them to see the end of kickoffs as, as a guy who's done a lot of years of youth football? Would that be something that in the interest of safety you'd be willing to give up out of the game? Real quick, because uh, I know people are on. The real thing, that I, got a, I got a solution a little bit for it that's been said for years. They've been talking about this. I, I like the kickoff because I have game plans in those kickoffs. Like I think yeah. Lance was talking about it earlier. Yeah, I, I agree there's with situations it, yeah. that you need that ball back. There's situations where we do dead ball kicks where I can get a shot at recovering those balls. And there's times I want to kick it deep and get them down there. But I think what the, 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 it might be the problem is, look, that I heard this years ago. These guys are getting bigger. These guys are getting faster. And this was not getting bigger. The field is not getting bigger. The field is the same size as it was for mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. So if you can expand the field, spec it out a little more, maybe we won't have these quick collisions. Because a lot of times they're impact hits that are in small spaces. But yeah. if you're in the open field, majority of the time in open field, you've got to tackle a guy because he's going to get away if you try to see you coming. So you got to you got to use your hands, grab him, hold him, do whatever you have to do. Just drag him down. There's not as many close hits. So when I was coaching Pop Warner, the field is huge to these kids. So people get worried about Pop Warner. It's nothing really to worry about because the hits are not. The field is too big. All right, Coach, I'm so going to give you a, I want to give huh? you a homework assignment before you call us back next time, okay? In you the want to inter- give what? I want to give you a homework assignment before you call us back the okay. next time, okay? In the interest okay. of strategy, and I appreciate what you just said about the strategy for a kickoff and that sometimes you're trying to get the ball back. If they were to abolish kickoffs, how would you now enact a new onside kick? When you are down by two scores, you get a late touchdown, and now you no longer have an onsides kick. So what rule could you come up with? That's a homework assignment. What rule could okay. you come up with so that the, the, the trailing team still has some sense of an opportunity to get that ball back? Right, Thanks, Coach, Marvin. Okay. Coach Marvin, appreciate the phone call. Thanks so much for waiting. Let's Thanks. head. You got it. Let's head back to the phone lines. Got Nigel in Maryland. Nigel, what's happening? Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon. I'll Hi. be really quick. Two-part question, both about special teams. 
Um, I sent a, I sent a tweet actually to you guys uh, earlier today, so you might see it on your feed. But I decided to call in about it. Okay. Um, the big talk obviously is the big ticket acquisitions through the draft and things like that regarding our offense and our defense. Obviously, but my I won't say con- I don't want to know if I, I don't know if I should use the word concern. But m- what I'm looking at is special is special teams because. Um, we made some solid signings in regards to the special team, addressing the special teams. But, I mean, the punter, okay, we have a new punter, unproven kicker. We don't know who the kick returner is as yet, punt returner as of yet. I mean, outside of Diasi, I mean, I really don't know what's going to be going on with the special teams. <laughs> I know it's going to all be hashed out, but, I mean, that's what I'm really looking at because those are the where a lot of the hidden yardage and – and and in terms of field position and flipping field and things of that nature, I mean shank punt, punt punts and missed field goals and and fair catches and no returns and you know all that affects that that affects wins and losses as well. Well, I agree with you. I, I think there is uncertainty in terms of who's going to ultimately win those roles, Nigel. But I don't think there's as much uncertainty in terms of not having options. And what I mean by that is, you know, they have Beckham. They've got Saquon, who they just brought in, Sterling Shepard, you know, Cody Latimer, Russell Shepard. I just named you five guys that have experience returning, whether it be punts or kickoffs. So there's competition there for them to rotate and utilize some of those personnel. And here's another player that a lot of people are not talking about who they brought in. And I'm talking about from a coverage standpoint what I think he could do. The safety they brought in from the Miami Dolphins. Who I Mike think Thomas. Is help them. Mike Thomas. Thomas yeah. I think he's going to be a nice addition on special teams as well. You know, I think right now, uh, in addition to all the other areas of special teams, to me, Aldrich Rosas has to get his act together. And that, I mean, that's points. His foot equals points. Um, We could talk all about the other things. Field position's critical. I agree with you 100%. But points are points, okay? Because you can't recover from a missed field goal. Those are points that are left off the board. And, And Rosas... Whether or not it's you know it's going to be Rico or it's going to be uh, um, uh, who's uh, who's the kicker that's in now? Is it Rico? Conan. 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 Yeah. Conan. Yeah. Conan. yeah. I'm, I'm Rico was the punter who they let go. Whether or not it's him or it's going to be a veteran, there's got to be competition and and the best man's got to win and that guy better be consistent and reliable because this Giants team is not going to blow people away to where a missed field goal will be inconsequential. They're going to need every opportunity to score points, and they're going to have to cash in on every opportunity if they're going to get themselves back in the hunt. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And the last point really quick, I'll take it off the air, is basically in regards to this whole taking away the kickoff and and things of that nature and, and the strategy regarding onside kicks, and not just that, the dynamic of your team. I mean, where will the Matthew Slaters and the, the Herslicks in the future, will they be able to make rosters and stay on rosters without earning their keep on special teams? And thanks for the call. thanks for taking my call, guys. You Thank guys, you. Nigel, thanks so much for weighing in. And that was the point that I brought up earlier. You're yeah. now all of a sudden impacting the livelihood of players that had specific roles, limited roles. And that's why they hammered out roster spots. Now, if you eliminate that component of the game, where is there a place for those players? So that's going to be fair. Conversation. Punts are still going to be part of the deal, and you will need a punt returner. You will need uh, guys who 
help uh, coverage units on the punt return. Snap the ball, too. Okay. Yeah. The long snapper's still going to be there. The gunners are still going to be there to try to get down in coverage. You know, I mean. There's just not going to be as there many won't be opportunities. As many. There won't be but, as many. But w- which means. But there still means, will be special teams. Th- there will be. There's but, still field goal block. Correct. And limited. there's still there's still the PAT and I mean yeah. they exist they, they do exist it's just limited reps and limited opportunities yes that's for true those players and that is true if you're an executive I think you have to say to yourself for example I'll use Zach Diossi who remember was drafted as a linebacker I know we only utilize him and yeah. look at him as a long snapper <laughs> but he was drafted as a linebacker I think you're going to be more prone to say to yourself now the risk of injury is going up Paul too but keeping a linebacker who can also be my long snapper. And what I mean by that, a linebacker that's going to be a backup linebacker or could very well be a guy I rotate in based on passing downs or running downs. You're going to want to think about that because you want to want to maximize the positions of your roster. Fair point. That, I think, does change the conversation. All right, let's head back to the phone lines. And now we go to Charlie in Portland, Maine. I guess this does not hold true where we save the best for last on today's program. (laughs) How are we doing, Charlie? Hey, guys, this has got to be a nightmare. My God. What, hey, your, your, I got, phone call, your phone call or the rule change? <laughs> no, the rule changes. So, okay, all right. Just one thing, clarification I got three on things. Yeah. Be- Belichick has already uh, contracted the active studio to figure out how he can teach everyone to, f- to uh, you know, be the best actors on this head-down thing so we can get players thrown out. That's one thing I, they're going to try to go beyond the rules. And the other thing is, is that, look, why doesn't this league, you've got 53 men rosters, allow the 53 to suit up for every game. If you're going to be throwing people out left and right, just like the ref said, yeah. you've got to have more people on the team. So if you've got 53-man roster, the stupid NFL should allow them to suit up 53 people. It just doesn't make any sense to have seven people sit out unless they're injured. And you, what you can do, too, if you've got five people injured, you can bring up five people from your practice squad and allow them to come in and be on the 53 with no penalty going back to the practice squad a week later. I mean, this is common sense stuff. And the kickoff, why don't they do this? Why doesn't the kickoff team, you know, instead of being 10 yards back or 20 yards back, be right up on the line of scrimmage with the team kicking off. That way they don't get the running start. It would be just like a field goal uh, Well, they you know, are. They're unit. removing the running start, though. And, and, and they're taking that what, out. Now, what you're Charlie. recommending, they're actually doing. There is no more a running start, and they're making sure that guys are aligned the specific way to prevent right. additional contact by picking up speed. That's scary, Charlie. The league is kind of on board with you. I know. And what's also scary is I actually like his idea about all 53 guys should have an opportunity to dress. I, I think from a common sense standpoint, Paul, it does make sense. Okay, actually, I, I'll I tell I you, disagree with I you had yet. a discussion uh, some years ago with a GM about that because I'm one who does believe that there should be more freedom of movement with the practice squad players because we have too many situations with teams being shorthanded or too many guys who are out because of injury, and it's like, why can't you replace them? It just doesn't seem to be right to me. So I've been arguing this now for years, Charlie, but I will say this. The reason I was told that they do it the way they do it is because they understand that every single week 
if you tell a team that you can put all your 53 players into active duty on Sunday, you will have inequities because in each of those matchups, there's probably going to be at least one team that doesn't have a full 53 guys healthy. And this, of course, this is what well, well, he's saying about bringing it up for the practice squad. Okay, now, and, but this is, this is why the rule is in place now as it is, because what they're saying is it's unfair if one team has 53 and the other team has 50. So you're countering and saying, well, let's have freedom of movement with practice squad guys, which is what I have advocated for years and was told can't do that because the players' union doesn't want that. What you have then is the players' union gripes because they'll say that you're holding on to cheap labor, is that you're going to take these practice squad guys, you bring them up for just a week, then you throw them back, and you're going to be dilly-dallying with these guys like a yo-yo, and they're going to be cheap labor, and they're going to be jerked around. Well, and they would have to change the rule, though. Well, I'll let you continue, Charlie. It's an interesting point you brought up, Paul, because right now, if I take a guy from the practice squad, I put him up on the 53-man roster. You have to make a corresponding move, which I think is ridiculous. Well, but, But here's the other thing. I then, after the game, to your point, I can't just freely move him back down. I have to put in a waiver, waiver right. and he may get claimed. Well, He's not guaranteed to come back to my see practice See what spot. I would do? You want what, to remove those What rules, I would do, Charlie, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make your life good because I'm going to tell you exactly what I've been asking for for years. I've right. gone to front office people and said, this is the way the rule needs to be constructed. Freedom of movement for all practice squad players at any time. They then get a per-game bump up when they're on the 53. Makes sense. And then, yeah. of course can be free to move back to the practice squad if a team wants to, and then they go back to their practice squad salary. The only time that you can do this is if an independent medical arbitrator, for instance, in a concussion situation, comes in so you don't have chicanery with a team saying, oh, my guy says he's got a concussion. I just want to get the practice squad guy up this week. No. No, there has to be legitimate. You have to have a legitimate independent medical guy that says, we are requesting a exception for one of our active 53, okay? That exception can be requested by, let's say, Thursday during the week. The team then has freedom of movement to put him on the exception list so that you don't lose rights to him. You don't have to put him on IR. He goes to the exception list. Then you get the freedom of movement for the practice squad guy to come on. He can practice for two days. He can get in the game. And then on Monday, you have to make another decision. Does the practice squad guy stay for another week, or do you get to put your exception guy back onto the 53 and put your practice squad guy back to the practice squad? Did I not solve your problem, Charlie? Yeah, well, that's that's what I've been talking about, too. Is it, I mean, you need to play You got them. You can get practice squad. Make it simple, make it easy. And I don't know why the Players Association wouldn't want that. They would want they more players to be able to play. They and- don't, Charlie. They don't want that because they think that you're artificially tying up opportunities for practice squad guys. They want those practice squad guys, once they get called up, they want them to be able to collect the full NFL salaries. They don't want, And they want them to pass through waivers because then they want other teams who may have a claim. chance to put yep. them on their 53 to go get them and give them the uh, the NFL salary. No, listen, they That's can, why. But they can, they can keep those rules in place. They can, they can keep... 
Charlie, they could keep those rules in place, though, and then you just add new guys to the practice squad, which happens more often than not anyway during the course of the season. I, like I, I think said, it could be a compromise. I've been after both. this for years. So, and, yeah. the, you know, the commissioner well, doesn't listen I don't to me, know. Charlie. It sounds like, listening to that ref, it sounds like, man, this is going to be so complicated. They're going to make this so, uh, unless they, you know, narrow this down. I mean, they're going to be throwing players out left and right. Well, and then, I wouldn't uh, go that far, Charlie. I mean, I, see, you go to the extreme, oh, and we're going we're to let you go on that note. The, the, one right. thing, the one thing I want to emphasize and appreciate the phone call, and I say that very lightly and loosely, I should we're say. We're going over, by the way, because we had no audio at the beginning of our Correct. program, so we want to give you a full well, hour on the podcast. Yes, so this will be our last <laughs> part of the conversation, and then we'll sign off. But I, I think the overreaction to this new helmet rule, Paul, is that, oh, they're going to be throwing guys off the field and out of the game left and right. I, I think that's the quick knee-jerk type of reaction. The good news is, as I mentioned, with New York looking things over, let's say the ref rules on the field that was an ejection-worthy hit. New York is then going to have an opportunity to weigh in, and New York is going to have to agree with the viewpoint of the official on the field. And New York could then overturn the viewpoint of the official on the field, and the player could then very well remain in the game. So you have sort of checks and balances, is my point. It's not as if the official is going to have a quick trigger, guys out of the game, and then that's it. So that's why I like the fact that New York is taking a look at it, and I think that's going to prevent the fears of perhaps the Charlies of the world who are always on a bubble and an island all by themselves that they think you know five or six guys are going to be constantly thrown out of games. I, I don't think we're going to get to that point. I think this is just to protect the extreme circumstances where a guy literally had all the other options in the world, Paul, to avoid contact, to get out of the way, and he clearly went helmet to helmet to lay out a player. And we've seen that at times, but those are not even happening every single circumstance throughout the course of a game. So I, I think that would be the big extreme if we get to that point. I just simply think that any time you start asking for more gray area and more judgment calls, you're going to create difficulties for all of the officials, whether or not they're replay guys or otherwise. I think we're muddying things up when you start putting judgment calls into the rule book. That's my problem. Well, and I get that. That's why if you are going to improve upon replay and you want to expand replay, it should definitely be used for judgment calls that may enter the gray area. And you're having two voices now. You're having the official's viewpoint and you're having New York's viewpoint. And both of them would have to be in line with one another for a player to be ejected. That, I think, is a nice safeguard in place if you were going to throw gray areas into replay. So that's why I'm not necessarily overly concerned that this is going to become an issue where guys are going to be okay. thrown out constantly. With that being said, certainly appreciate all the phone calls, all the tweets. We want to thank Jim Deopolis for joining us earlier in the program, former NFL official, for trying to clarify and giving his two cents on how these new rules will be impacting the game. Big Blue Kickoff Live up and running tomorrow, noon Eastern, and that is going to be it for the week because it's a holiday weekend there will be no show on Friday and there's no show on Monday so we will then be back up and running on Tuesday of next week that's the next OTA with media availabilities indeed all right so that's the layout of the land the schedule have a very pleasant holiday weekend for Paul Dottino I'm Lance Meadow we'll speak to you next week right here on Giants.com have a good one